Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. This week, we've got something special for you. We've got the first of what I hope will be many collaboration roundtable podcasts that we will be putting together with our network comrades at From78 and Red Library. This week, the podcast was Neil from From78, Adam from Red Library, Jason, and myself. This week's episode was mixed by Adam, so I hope you enjoy it, and don't forget to check out From78 and Red Library on your favorite podcatching app, and look out for the Lost Horizons Network podcast appearing on its own feed on your favorite podcatching app. All right, enjoy the show. Okay, so this is the first episode of, well, here we are still, <laughs> after all. Um, and there's four of us here. Uh, I'm Neil, and I host a podcast uh, called From 78, which is on the Lost Horizons Network. And I'm here with some comrades who are also hosts of other podcasts that are on that network. So why don't you guys say who you are and what podcast you're from, and I don't know what your spirit animal is or whatever other information you'd like to share with whoever listens to this. <laughs> I'll go next. <laughs> I'm Chris, and I am one of the hosts of the Regrettable Century podcast. Yeah, that's I. That's about it, really. I'm in Texas, where I'm you know isolated with my cats right now, enjoying you guys' company. I'm Jason, also from the Regrettable Century. I'm from Texas, so maybe my spirit animal is an armadillo, but I reside in Los Angeles, which is a, a really hard place to be totally socially distant, but I'm pulling it off. Yeah. And uh, this is Adam or Comrade Adam as I go by on Red Library Political Education Podcast for today's left. I'm also in Texas with Comrade Chris over there, although I'm a little bit further north. Society is collapsing around me and I'm just loving all of it as it burns to the fucking ground. Um, <laughs> so, uh, my spirit animal is uh, Lennon's embalmed corpse. Mm. <laughs> my spirit also, animal is uh, the drawing of that Walter Benjamin had of the angel, the Angelus Novus. Yeah, the Angelus Novus. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Like my the the Klee image. Yeah, that's my spirit animal. My spirit animal is the Battlestar Galactica. <sighs> All right, like the 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 actual ship or the series, uh, the ship definitely. Okay, yeah. All right, mm-hmm. I think it would be the series. It would have to just be like the first three seasons. I don't think you could do any more than that. Probably not. I, no, I, I mean, don't think I really get how this whole spirit animal thing works. I picked an animal. <laughs> I'm just trying not to like you know culturally appropriate. So I'm picking something that a white guy in Europe did. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was wondering, I was like, where's the woke reactionary critique about what we just did? So we're, Oh, it's our, coming. Yeah, so it's all right. We're going to be canceled after our first first little group chat here. Hey, I've, I've been canceled. The hell, we've all been canceled. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. We're just all grizzled veterans of, of the culture wars. <laughs> so on that note, let's talk about this. We've been talking about atomized existence and social isolation or distancing or whatever it is. Same thing as Jason mentioned earlier and just about what's going on in the world here and our plan was to talk about dialectical pessimism which i mean i don't think there's any standardized definition for this thing but it's something that all of us i think recognize that we have in common is that we are interested in this idea of dialectical pessimism and what it is and kind of how to how to use it in a variety of different ways to make the lives that we live more tolerable. I know that it's it's weird when I talk about this. People go, how can pessimism actually result in a life being more tolerable? And I don't know, do you guys ever get that question in, in your lives when you try to kind of, you find yourself in one of those conversations where you're able to kind of explain your view on the world and people are, uh, and you explain what it is and how it helps you and people kind of go like, wait, what? That helps you? Does that happen to you guys? Yeah. Anytime that I ever have tried to explain to them that concept, like all the time, I'd say that I think that I've, I've always said this about myself, that I'm, I expect the worst to happen and I don't expect anything good to really work out if it just happens to do so, then, you know, on a personal level, you know, if it just happens to work out, then shit, you know, I didn't expect that. And it makes, it makes the crushing defeats easier to, first of all, to easier to take but also easier to understand because you're not reeling from them and you can start to analyze them in uh, in real time as they happen. I definitely have been asked that question, like in basically in those terms, even like how does like a pessimistic outlook help you, you know, in any way? 
Um, Because I think that people equate pessimism with hopelessness, despair, and like a fetish for despair, even like a refusal to see the potential in something because of a commitment to it not working out. So that's what I think what people hear when they hear the word pessimism. I have adopted or I have adapted a lot of like modifiers and qualifiers to how to to explain my kind of outlook. And my favorite has been Gramsci's pessimism of intellect, but optimism of will. But also in this essay, the name and author of which I forget. Oh, it's called Excremental Happiness from Neurotic Hedonism to Dialectical Pessimism. I really like this. I'm going to I'm going to adapt this as well as this. It's a matter of adapting to being the manure of history rather than necessarily like hoping to be the plowman of history. <laughs> um, doing the melancholy work of preparing the ground, which is to say, like, you know, I have a I have an optimism about the the outcome, but I have a pessimism about the immediate I'm still donating to and phone banking for. Bernie Sanders, when doesn't look like he's going to win. It might. That's not the point. The point is to be the manure of history and to prepare the ground. That's interesting. I, I know that um, when I, I talk to people about that, they, they also kind of tend to focus on the word pessimism and ignore the word dialectical. When I, I try to explain this to people, I'm sure that sometimes that's because, I mean, the people I'm talking to are only familiar with the term pessimism and they have no familiarity with the idea of dialectical anything. And, but there are other times where I'm very sure that the people I'm talking to have heard of dialectical things, right? They've heard of dialectical materialism or dialectical view of history, so on and so forth. And they still also glam on to this term pessimism and tend to think that, that that that's the important part. And so when I have conversations, I try to bring things back to the dialectic part of it. And it's this idea of going deeply into pessimism and discovering the contradictions in it, actually, and exploring those. And the phrase that I've adopted, my catchphrase for it, is pessimism is the new optimism. And, and, I, and I mean that in a way, right? Like by, by becoming deeply pessimistic about the world because you kind of like let it break your heart open and then then you let the world into that broken heart that it creates a, a I mean it's hard it's not easy to do these things but I think it creates a desire a genuine desire for things to be different as opposed to just kind of expecting that something else is going to happen that's just going to make it good uh, and kind of waiting for that it's this idea that that it creates a desire to do things a desire to not just stand by idly well, whatever's making the world bad continues to make it bad uh, and to, to take a stand and try to make it better. And even if that's not a successful stand, the idea for me anyways is that it's better to have taken that stand and failed than it would be to just sort of say like, well, I'll try to find the silver lining in this, this terrible thing. I'll just, I'll just wait for uh, somebody to actually describe it to me in a way that makes it sound good. No, it's not good. It's bad. Mm-hmm. But recognizing the bad is the first step towards transforming it into something that potentially could be less bad. It could also, I suppose, be more bad. But that's the thing. You got to be, I, I find pessimism is the door through through which I have to pass if I want to engage in a dialectic that produces something better. Like Badiou says that happiness comes from the discovery of the possible within the impossible. Like as a historical agent, when you discover your capacity to do something new, but it's like a genuine discovery, right? Like when a moment of like revolutionary rupture occurs and it takes you by surprise because truly, honestly, you didn't expect it to happen. Even if you live your life preparing the groundwork for it. So like one of my favorite May 68 slogans is scrawled on the wall of the Sorbonne is already 10 days of happiness because it's like a week and a half into the into the revolt and people are discovering things about themselves and about their all of a sudden the world looks much bigger than it did before and history is unfolding before them and they experience real joy for the first time and that's what's like kind of embodied in that slogan as opposed to the kind of like phony happiness of this like happiness industry where like the present affectation of the moment we live in is positive thinking as like a lifestyle to adopt that you will yeah. attract good things because you're out there being optimistic and always hoping for the best and always seeing the silver lining in the things that don't go the way you want. And that seems to me to close off the impossible and thus close off the possibility of discovering the possible within the impossible. To answer the question of, you know, do I get asked about oh, yeah. the, <laughs> the dialectical pessimist part? Yeah, I would say that I think I've been asked that question long before I ever had a way to name the experience, whether that's sort of like the embodied, visceral, affective approach to not just the sort of theoretical historical side of what we all do on our shows, but in a really personal sense. And 
you know, I gather that part of, for all of us, we're drawn to this sort of perspective because it resonates with our actual lived experience, to use E.P. Thompson's phrase. And I guess whenever I think about, just to be kind of thinking about it very personally, you know, I think my sort of history of going through very tough shit where I grew up, horribly economically devastated area, very, very working class family, and seeing that experience of just grinding it out 16 hours a day at your job, you know, and then still being so precarious all the time. And I think there's a certain way that it maybe trained me to to actually kind of like you were saying, Chris, to like just assume that the the worst is probably always going to happen. Because you see people putting forth efforts, Herculean efforts of labor, of care for each other and their families day in and day out. And you also see that it doesn't change the structural conditions that shape their lives. And so I think whenever you talk about pessimism, people latch on to pessimism because they, they interpret that as nihilism. And they think that what you're saying is that you don't believe in anything. You think that everything is hopeless. And it's like, well, everything may be hopeless, but that does not mean that there aren't things to do. And there, and there isn't a sort of like energy and vitality and being able to recognize, I, I use this phrase from Slavoj Zizek, but the courage of hopelessness, like, and I'm firmly convinced in some way with Badu here that maybe what we're trying to say is that in this sort of happiness industry kind of context in which we live, the only way on a, on a level of being a subject, if we dare call ourselves that, is you have to find some point, some Archimedean point to stand on to then push back and say, actually, if being happy is the whole thing that's driving my existence, then the way that I'm going to undermine and and wage you know a revolutionary counter struggle against that is to actually be able to fully immerse myself in the things that that is trying to obscure from my experience. Mm. You know, we used to live in the age of anxiety, but every more mm. at this age, I think we live in the age of depression. And the age of depression, I think, is a vastly different structural condition to be in. And I think it only exists because of this injunction to enjoy that we're just hearing and socialized into all the time. Some of us weren't built for happiness and uh, <laughs> it it pays to recognize that and yeah. not to feel as though there's something wrong with us when we can't realize this false imposed version of happiness that our society has uh, told us that we need to be able to, to feel. Um, Chris, would you say that this whole planet is ill-equipped for joy? This whole planet is ill-equipped for joy. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm getting a fucking trucker hat with that on it. That's maybe one of my favorite statements of all time. Well, the second, the second half of that is, is the hopeful part, which is why it's why joy must be stolen from the future. I love that. That works too. Yeah. That's, That's Mayakovsky. A, Mayakovsky, yeah. 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 Don't worry, the, the, the hopeful part will be on the back of my trucker hat. <laughs> There aren't enough Mayakovsky trucker hats. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> we should set up an Etsy store for the Lost Horizons Network. <laughs> we'll sell those trucker hats. We're going to sell at least three of them. <laughs> you know, though, as, as we're, we're talking about this, there's something that, that kind mm. of an association that comes to mind for me. Where did I hear this? I don't remember if it's Zizek that, I, that said this or if it's Peter Rollins. It was one of the two. But it's um, a reference to the movie Collateral, the Tom Cruise movie. With Probably I think, Zizek. With I think yeah. Jamie, Jamie Foxx is the gay. So, so for anybody who has not seen this terrible movie, I'm going to totally spoil it for you now. Uh, Jamie Foxx is a, uh, I think it's Jamie Foxx, but he's, he's a cab driver. And one day he goes to the airport and he picks up Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise gives him just a bunch of money up front. It's like, here, here's, you know, a couple thousand, like $5,000 or something like that. And he's like, that's just yours right now for nothing, right? And if you get me to these eight places and back to this airport by this time, then there's that much money. You get that again, basically. And so the cab driver is super motivated to make this happen. So he's driving Tom Cruise around these places and they're chatting. And Tom Cruise notices that the cab driver has a picture of a limousine on his dashboard. And he asks him about it. He's like, oh, I have this idea. I have this dream that one day, you know, I'm going to save enough money and I'm going to start my own limo company. And it's going to be really great that I start my limo company because... Uh, when I get that that going, I'm going to be able to do exactly what I want. I'm not going to be tied to this cab, which is terrible and awful, and I hate it. Blah blah blah. So they they go around and they do this, and it it becomes eventually the cab driver learns that uh, Tom Cruise is killing people at each of these stops that he drops him off at, and that puts a kink in their relationship. And he <laughs> he says, if uh, if you don't keep doing this, I'm going to totally kill you too. And the cab driver is, you know, mad. And Tom Cruise is like, you're judging me. And the cab driver's like, you're damn right I'm judging you. You're a bad person. You're killing people. And Tom Cruise says, hey, that limo thing. 
how much money do you actually have saved to buy that limo? And the guy, cab driver's like, I'm not going to tell you how much I, I'm not, not going to talk to you about it. He goes, you're not going to tell me because you don't have any. Because this job is so terrible and pays you so badly that you can't save. You, you actually don't have the option, but you have this dream, this like optimistic idea that given enough time and enough hard work, you're going to be able to do this thing that is actually impossible for you to do. So you know what? I'm judging you, bud. <laughs> That's kind of his thing. The reason I think this gets brought up is to point out the way that this like very, um, what I think of as a very bourgeois concept, right, of positivity and think positive and cultivate this version of yourself that is the best version of yourself, the way that that anesthetizes people to the desire to create meaningful change in their own personal lives and more broadly, right? If you have this dream, um, you have it, it basically, you convince yourself you're working towards it when in fact you are just kind of staying in the same spot. And, and it's one of the best ways to, I think, uh, actually successfully anesthetize gigantic swaths of the population is through a hope that offers them structurally and materially nothing. And I think that's what's happening a lot. That's what makes the the pessimistic point of view more attractive to me is that it's going like, okay, I can't, even if I, I work really hard, I'm still not going to be able to do the thing that I want to do. Th this doesn't make sense. This, this has to be changed in some way. Positive thinking is the opiate of the masses in the era of neoliberalism. I mean, it is a secular religion at this point. It is. Yeah, it's way uh, worse than religion, actually. Religion yeah, we, at least offers some solace. Exactly, right? We tore down the altars and replaced them with self-help seminars. And vision boards. <laughs> and vision boards. Give me back my altars, man. This is a raw deal. On the subject of, of what religion does teach you is one of the things that it teaches you is there's virtue in suffering as you sort of plod through and carry on in the face of the world, right? And so this injunction to not be of the world even though you're in it, because of how it's terrible, right? It's not entirely different from being guided by like a hope or a dream, but it's also not at all the same as extolling the virtue of placing that at the center of every experience. And that it's different than the vision board. It's like saying that like, you know, <laughs> it's it's saying that like, you know, you, you're going to have to suffer and toil. And that is your lot in life by virtue of being born into the world. And that resonates with me more than just continue to try to manifest the thing, you know, in, in defiance of reality. Yeah, at least at least with Christianity anyway, the the reward is promised to you after you die. You know, it doesn't tell you that you can do anything on your, uh, you can make your life better of, of your own accord and that all you have to do is keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and everything will get better. It doesn't promise you anything until after you die. So it's at least that that Christianity is infinitely more realistic than this cult of positive thinking. <laughs> Right. Well, and to put a materialist spin on it or to to try to think about it more dialectically, like the impetus to do the work necessary to survive the world in order to get to the point where you get to die and achieve salvation is closer to the revolutionary aspirations of the proletariat in creating a world worth living in Absolutely. than is the appeal to just not acknowledge the awfulness of existence. We're closer to a millenarian monotheistic approach to suffering as Marxists than we are to this kind of liberal refusal to acknowledge it. I mean, this actually reminds me of something from the dialectic of defeat that really left a big impression on me was the way of describing a Marxist point of view. And I would dare say maybe even a dialectical pessimist point of view as being an attempt at a secular theodicy, you know, not only how to understand why is there evil in the world, but also to understand what is salvation in a world so <laughs> on its very face, horribly corrupt and violent and destructive in ways that are inconceivable. And even for us on this call today, who are, I think, very familiar with the effects of the system, and even for us, I think it's truly inconceivable. So I do want to say one thing about happiness, though, <laughs> just, just so that it doesn't get twisted um, or misunderstood. I don't think it's an impossibility, real happiness. I like, I don't agree with Zizek. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing, right? I think it can be achieved, real happiness. I think uh, lasting happiness is another question. But like, if you've ever been in love, you know what it means to feel happy. If you've ever been in love long enough, you also know what it means to have happiness go away, right? Like, these aren't like false feelings that people have. And I do think that like, if you, if you could reduce everything I have to say tonight to just quotes by other people, when Camus says to live to the point of tears... I take that very seriously, but that means embracing 
both the potentiality for bliss that comes from living life fully, uh, as well as the potential for plummeting into the depths of despair as the other side of living life fully. That's at an individual level, somewhat separate, but not entirely separate from the question of the world historic mission of the proletariat as the subject of history. It's just as an individual person living in the world, acknowledging and embracing the potential for tripping and falling into the depths of despair, I think it just comes with the territory of trying to ascend to the heights of, of joy. You can't really get there if you don't think it's possible to not get there. Mm. I, I think That's, that that with this, it's again, I, I had this idea that I, I totally agree with everything that Jason just said, that, that pessimism can turn into nihilism if you're not careful. I mm-hmm. think that that's actually something that happens to many people. Um, and nihilism is also an unproductive state. I, I think that an anesthetizing optimism is also something that, that leads to a lack of things happening, right? So nihilism and this sort of like anesthetizing positivity, I think, are, are much closer together. Uh, the pessimism, the dialectical pessimism that I, I believe and hope that I'm actually uh, working towards and working with is something that is productive, ultimately, right? I try to emphasize that when I talk about it with people, is the, the productivity that comes from exploring the contradiction in pessimism. And, and that's when I, when I say that pessimism is the new optimism, I mean that somewhat as a, as a joke, but I actually also mean it somewhat seriously too, right? By going into this state of um, everything is bad, uh, eventually it's like a Mobius strip and you you find yourself on, on another side of it. Right. And, and I, I to, to kind of like try to go with the vocabulary that Jason was using. I think that if you want to ascend to the heights of joy, you kind of can't get to those heights unless you go through the pessimistic path. Right. There's a lot of false paths maybe that might lead you there. Like this sort of um, eight steps to happiness sorts of junk that's out there everywhere and the self-help sections of bookstores and on blogs and countless podcasts and YouTube channels uh, and life coaches and stuff. But that's, that's a false path. The, the way I tried to explain it recently, and I just did this like on the fly, I was talking to uh, a friend and I said, you know, I want you to imagine that we're all like inside this building and it's so big that we can't actually imagine even imagining how big it is. And it's full of stuff. Like there's file cabinets and ducks and staircases and, chairs and other people and there's no lights in this building so we're all just kind of like stumbling around it with our hands out trying our best not to walk into something that's going to hurt us and step on one of those ducks or step on one of those ducks yeah or or a canadian goose because they're mean and and stuff right so we're just doing that and occasionally what happens and a lot of people are like where's the light switch i'll find the light switch i'll turn on the light switch i'll see where all the bad shit is and i'll avoid it it'll be great i just need to find the light switch i think the dialectical pessimist is somebody who's coming around and saying like hey this light switch we're looking for it doesn't actually exist it's a fiction and you know we can spend a lot of time and energy looking for it and that'll be wasted time and wasted energy looking for this thing that's not real and then there are other people who come around and they're like hey check it out i have night vision goggles and if you just follow me i'm gonna lead you to the light switch just give me 50 bucks or something like that and and those folks are around too so i i feel like i'm i'm one of those weird people who's trying to convince other people that are looking for the light switch that the light switch doesn't exist and betwixt charlatans and rubes and ducks <laughs> and ducks I think one thing I'm wondering about, just as a distinction here, is that we're talking very much about dialectical pessimism as sort of this antidote to the happiness industry. And I wonder if it, for us, thinking about what comes out of a dialectical engagement with the the experience of pessimism or that is like your general operating principle or mode. I mean, whenever I think about happiness and what all of those happiness industry approaches are doing is they're basically saying that what you're aiming for is a state of either satiation or almost a kind of like a a nullifying of all the vicissitudes of like modern life under horrible climate catastrophic globalized capitalism. And I'm curious for y'all, like whenever I think about why the dialectical pessimist sort of worldview, like what hit me about it and what made me say, that's it. Not just personally, but also to say, oh, I want to like talk to other people who seem to be on the same thing or like do a podcast about it. It's to me because like what you find is you don't find happiness so much, but I do think you find genuine moments of joy because there's a certain engagement with what at least appears to be kind of like this reality principle. Like it divests you of certain illusions 
And in that, there's a much more complex experience of enjoyment that strikes me as being different than happiness as it's typically defined. Well, I was just thinking about Neil's example, the metaphor of the gigantic, basically the Death Star without a light switch. And uh, the what... <laughs> What occurred to me was that, you know, I spent a lot of time in my 20s searching for the light switch with a bunch of other people who also really wanted the light switch. And that light switch in this metaphor is the embryonic pre-party formation. You know, so like we'll illuminate the darkness. We'll like we'll banish it once we find this fucking light switch. We're all dedicated to it. And we didn't find it because it doesn't exist. And at a certain point, I abandoned the path of trying to find the light switch. But I still have to live inside this dark building or I still have to exist inside of it for the time being. So what are the other approaches, you know, and doing something like engaging with like a fairly typical political campaign during an election year with the two main bourgeois parties is like anathema to the people who are like, you can't fucking see anything. You need the light switch. But I don't know. Maybe I'll find a curtain and I'll draw it back and it'll illuminate part of the building. Maybe what we'll do is we'll find that by engaging with what is and trying to push it as far as it can go, we might stumble upon something that actually makes things more clear. That pursuing the that point of rupture, like that resolution of contradictions actually might produce a situation in which the light switch question goes away and some other question is raised instead. And to connect it, I guess, Adam, to what you were saying is I have experienced moments of undiluted joy at engaging with people on the actual questions, people who I wouldn't have otherwise because they w- I would have in a previous life, I would have been trying to engage with them about it in a discussion for which they're not prepared and are uninterested, which is the light switch. Trying to recruit people to the to the uh, pre-party formation that one day will give birth to the party that will be the vanguard and all of the other stuff. There's a completely different set of engagements you have with a completely different set of people when you abandon the fiction and begin to engage with the world, however dark and bleak it actually is. In addition to that, when, when you say that you might find something something better, it, that makes a lot of sense to me. And the, the thing that, that's better is that instead of it trying to, to find this thing that you're not going to find, you start asking yourself, okay, so if I'm not going to find that, what can I do with the experience that I do have? Like what, what about this experience can be generative, can be useful, so on and so forth. And I think a lot of times it's, it's a real painful thing to, to go through the process of realizing that the light switch is a fiction because, you know, if, if, any, if all of you are like me, I also, when I was in my 20s and, and probably even through a good portion of my 30s, did believe that there was a light switch and that I could find it, that I, if I looked in the right spot or surrounded myself with the right people or read the right literature that it it would somehow coalesce and coming to that to the idea uh, that there isn't this light switch another way i could say this too that when i was younger i believed in and what i'll broadly call the revolution and i thought like after the revolution everything will be groovy and so the question is how do we make the revolution and i got to a point where i was like you know what even if there's the supposed revolution occurs the world is still going to be the world that it was the people are going to be very much still the same people that they were before it the problems are not going to all go away as a result of of the revolution. The revolution that I believed in is largely a fiction, and I could still like be broken because of that and think, oh my gosh, I've wasted all this time and energy trying to pursue this thing that's not real. Or I could be upset and hurt and sad, and then you know eventually move towards something that can happen some kind of transformation which is in fact somewhat possible or or it seems like it is anyways and that's that's what the pessimistic worldview became for me was this like sadness because this this thing that i wanted to believe was true wasn't true in the way that i thought it was and that necessitated a need to either just give up or decide to do something else and deciding to do something else seemed a lot better but painful sure so i had a somewhat similar realization when i was a little bit younger and it's not that i don't believe in the possibility of the revolution to me i haven't given up hope in the idea that something like that could happen one day but like you i don't think that if the revolution did happen, then it would immediately be the panacea that cures all the ills of society. I think that there's that transitionary process where the revolution is going to be messy and uh, it's going to fix some problems. It's going to cause other problems, but that's not even the important part of what I'm thinking of. What I'm thinking of is like the idea that the part that we play on the road to whatever the revolution is and whatever it looks like is something like what Jason mentioned earlier is being the uh, the manure in that process rather than you know the plowman in the process that's my utopian myth that that I strive for right 
that there is the revolution. That's what I want to contribute. I want to contribute in some way towards that possibility, that future possibility. And even if it is just as the manure, uh, I think that that is okay. I'm okay with that. And in the meantime, I want to achieve something that is tangible and possible. You know, I'd like to have Medicare for all or something in the meantime. Right. Right. But uh, I, I do want to contribute in a way that I, that, that matters towards the, to this, this grand project towards this, the utopia, the utopian horizon that it's so fucking far away now that we don't even know what the horizon looks like anymore. We can't even conceive of a utopian horizon anymore, but I'd like to play some part in helping people imagine what that is. I feel like that's what we're all trying to do that the conversations we continue to have are trying to reinvigorate a sort of utopian worldview precisely, you know, as it feels like everything is burning to the ground around us. I'm reading a book right now called Perversion and Utopia. That's sort of an analysis of the relationship between the Frankfurt School and psychoanalysis at the time. And one of the things that I think is really already very enticing about the book is to say that the, the sort of dialectic of enlightenment view of Adorno and Horkheimer, one of the things that they did lose was the the possibility of a utopian perspective in that very you know cynical culture industry kind of critique that they offered, and I, I feel like in some way that's that's kind of what we're saying is I mean I think the 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 gamble here the dice that we're rolling is to say being as an individual and even or groups of people who are socialized so deeply in this you know form of capitalism where the happiness industry is a necessary ideological requirement for things to continue functioning the way that they do mm-hmm. like that is a necessity i am firmly convinced of that that we're gambling that there is no utopian perspective in that in that worldview it doesn't exist i mean if there is one it is only an individual utopia right like happiness is an individualized atomized form of a utopian view and I think what we're what we're rolling the dice on is to say it is still possible to capture a collective utopian vision. It's just that the only way to find it is not to return to some version of it from the past, but is to in some ways like go through this horribly painful transformative process of trying to carve out a new way to think about it. And to me, I mean, I feel like that's exactly what our shows are trying to do, even if we don't always say that on the surface. I think that I mean, to me on Red Library, I will tell you that whenever we started the show, I think that it was very much coming out of a direct engagement in very like radical hard left groups in our city. Mm-hmm. And every almost every episode, whether it's on the surface or not, we are very low key offering this perspective precisely as an antidote to the sort of megalomania that infests like those hard left groups because exactly what you were saying, Chris, because I think that the the illusion that we can be the plowman of history is still bought into this like happiness industry, great man of history model. And and I think that the only realistic way to approach it is to say, listen, yeah, we all are more than likely going to be the manure. And that is a virtuous, noble thing. And there's no reason to denigrate that. I don't know if you all have read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, but the thing oh, yeah. that stuck with me more than anything else was he said, you know, whenever you think about the civil rights movement, the important thing to understand is that even though you might see like MLK or Rosa Parks or whoever, it's like you have to understand that there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands mm-hmm. of people who contributed to that and you will never know their names. And there was something about that that really changed my perspective and was to say like almost being one of the nameless thousands that contributed to that, there's something really beautiful about that to me. And I, to me, this perspective feels like it gives me a way to conceptualize realistically how that would look or how to like capture that. Hey, right. in that, in you're, that you're, equation, you are proletarian, you know? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you're talking about being comfortable being Jimmy Higgins and not Eugene Debs. Yeah. Somebody's got to sell the tickets to the, you know, somebody's got to arrange the chairs and put them all away. And everybody's out there trying to be the speech maker. Of course, we all have, we all have podcasts, so we're all a little guilty of it. We're all products of our time and place. Um, but if we're, maybe if we're using it to talk about how we're not going to be up on the stage, maybe it still helps to serve the purpose. And also, like, just a thought on being manure versus plowman and, the, and, and on the subject of the revolution being a panacea. We shouldn't forget how many plowmen turn into manure. Maybe, yeah, maybe you'll get to be Danton or Trotsky. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like <laughs> you're still going under the plow at the end. And that's okay. These are the these are the heroes of previous centuries upon whose shoulders we stand. But I think there's a misconception that they became those people by like will alone. You know, there's so much contingency and chance and who actually falls into those particular spots in history. And I think that that's part of what what a dialectical pessimist sort of perspective offers is to say, okay, the contingency of history, the sort of like junk pile of history. Yeah, maybe you might land on top where everyone sees that that's where you were. But the likelihood is that you're going to be buried at the bottom. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. And right. and I guess, yeah, to me, it's just to also like if we're talking about this sort of acceptance of the reality of the world and the state of things, I think part of that is to say that chance and contingency which anyone who has studied anything about revolutionary history knows chance and contingency are so paramount that you can never underestimate their influence on why a revolution happens or it doesn't. And just to also agree with Chris, I am still firmly in favor of the revolution. I mean, I call everyone comrade on my show. Like, I mean, I can't, <laughs> I can't posture it as it being anything other in favor of it and that being the goal. It's just a, the the perspective on what that means and what it will, would be to be a part of it just has to be so thoroughly different than I think most perspectives now that I've encountered. I really like the idea of happiness industry socialism uh, describing sect life, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking shots fired right there. <laughs> well, it no, is. like It is, yeah. We've talked a lot about how how liberal the thinking of the left is and how like thoroughly recuperated like revolutionary kind of phrase phrase mongering is and how much radical organization mirrors the all of the worst aspects of the alienated life that we live you know at work or at like at at fucking seminars and things and then you go to like a socialist meeting and you you almost think like at least if i was at work i'd be getting paid to do this um (laughs) so like happiness industry socialism is the is the primary one right now and hopefully it's only a phase but like you know we this is something that that david harvey talks a lot about like the organization of the class mirroring the organization of production you know and he said that you know in the fordist era you know we had these the big unions concentrated in the big factories we've developed a corresponding organization to this era and it's atomized and diffuse. And it, it, again, it adopts all of the affectations and the sentiments and even the ideology, you know, despite its official red tinge, all of the, all of the ways of being and knowing of the present order of things. It, like at some point, we have to figure out a way to develop an approach to resistance, which doesn't just mirror the conditions that we're trying to resist. And I think one way of doing that, or one probably very critical element of trying to, to map that out, is to acknowledge the hold the ideology has. And the happiness industry socialism is a really good way of understanding the hold that that liberal ideology has on the left at the moment. Like something breaking with that, which means being pessimistic, is necessary. That reminds me of one of, one of the things that helped me. I don't know. It was like a, a moment. And it, it wasn't like, like everything changed after this, but this was a, a moment that stands out to me as a, a point that is significant. And it was reading about Lacan's reaction to May 68, where he said, you know, as uh, depending on the translations you read, as hysterics, as revolutionaries, it's a new master you seek and a new master you will find. And I, a lot of people who I knew and associated with would refer to that and talk about how Lacan was just some sort of a, a reactionary conservative douchebag who didn't know what he was talking about and structuralists don't march in the streets and so on and so forth. For whatever reason, my reaction was like, this is making enough people upset that I, I kind of want to know more about this. And and I started to learn more about Lacan and about his thought. And it took a long time. But now, I mean, I, I think that that's very true when there's a lot of people who are part of the left today talking about the revolution. What they mean when they say that is really an important thing to look into, I think, right? What what do you mean when you say the revolution? What does that signify or signify for you? Mm. And I think a lot of times people assume that there's like like my definition and their definition are really close together, um, and they mean more or less the same thing. And because I uh, of my pessimistic worldview, I think I, I actually don't assume that. In fact, I assume the opposite is probably far more likely that when somebody else is talking about the revolution, that their revolution. It is not the revolution that I would want, that it is just replacing one corrupt, rotten, terrible system with another rotten, terrible, and corrupt system. And that's a bummer. 
Like I, I, I really get sad when I think about that. And occasionally I meet people who that's not the case, right? But but that's um, maybe what you were talking about in the beginning. It's expecting that people mean the worst thing and then being pleasantly surprised when, in fact, they, <laughs> they're talking yeah. about something more, I, I guess, in line with what I think the revolution should be. It's weird. Like, instead of thinking about the revolution, I, I now always imagine that, that what we need to talk about is people aren't, aren't loyal to the revolution. They're, they're loyal to a revolution. And it's just which revolution are they, they loyal to and thinking about and trying to work towards. That's a really important question, I think, to always mm-hmm. ask ourselves, you know, about our own actions and, and others, especially the people who we find ourselves the closest to. Um, and as I say that, that, that makes me realize that I don't think I've ever asked any of you that question, right? Like if you were to, to talk about, I mean, it's a huge question. So what is, does that mean to you? What is the revolution? When you use that signifier, what does it signify for you? Uh, sorry, all I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> so it's both 1789 and 1792, because those were both revolution. There's the moment at which the population is in a general state of firm, uh, fervor, ferment, pick one of those and and, edit that in. <laughs> and uh then there's another point in which like there are people who are no longer on board it's like oh we already had the revolution you know it's february and october but they're both the revolution and that means for me also the the sort of there's this great cautionary tale that we're supposed to we're supposed to interpret the french revolution especially 1792 as this cautionary tale going all the way to the edge as far as the land as you can see with the lantern and then jumping out further than you can see as if you were lightning. And I think in my uh, in my most cogent and let's say put together version of myself, I'm utterly prepared, I think. Like let's say let's say mentally I when I talk about the revolution, I mean the lightning. I mean like let's see where it goes as far as it possibly can go, further than our own aspirations even. Even if it means a dialectical drawing back afterward. Because one of the things that that revolution did is it made it impossible to go back to the France before 1792. So the, even the restoration of monarchy was on, on the basis of a bill of rights and of a constitution and of like some semblance of like Republican institutions, right? Which sows the seeds for the next revolution. So when I say the revolution, I, I guess I, I like the idea of a revolution rather than the revolution, because to think dialectically about the world means to recognize that if ever there is an end of history, we're not going to be able to plan on it. We're going to lay the stage for the next stage. We're going to be the manure for the next season's harvest. But is there ever going to be a final harvest? I don't know. That's not actually important. And I think that some of the, uh, some of the tragedies of thinking about the revolution as, a, as an act and which one is prepared for and then engages in and then achieves and is, and is a hero it within, is it uh, doesn't really prepare you for any kind of revolution because you, you have a conception of what will be rather than a, a willingness to be a part of what is. That's right. Yeah. The French Revolution is going to be my point of reference for this whole conversation now. <laughs> I think that that's absolutely right. And I don't disagree with what Jason said at all about, about his conception of a revolution instead of the revolution. I, I sort of think about it like this, like a sort of, and I think I mentioned this, I don't, I don't remember which episode I mentioned it on, if it was on the, uh, the one we did with you, Adam, Dialectic of Defeat episode, where I talked about the Marxist Pascal's wager, where you don't, it's, it doesn't really matter whether or not you believe in the existence of heaven and the existence of God. It just makes, it makes more sense for you to behave as though you do and to practice a sort of an an orthopraxis, you know, adhering to the orthodoxy of the, the belief in the idea of revolution, just in case it happens that you can take a, a meaningful part in it and not be completely blindsided by it and not have actively worked against the, uh, the advent of the revolution in some way by convincing people that it's not possible. It's, it's, it's a choice between like denying that you, it is possible to have a, well, a world historic responsibility as a part of your class to the revolution and then being wrong and then being wrong and then being part of the reason why it didn't happen or to just to be, I think I, I characterize that wrong. What I meant to say was <laughs> if, if you behave as though you believe in the, pro, the, the possibility of revolution, then, and that you have the world historic responsibility to take part in it. If you're wrong, then you knew that nothing bad happens. Things just continue on as they were. But if you're right, then you get to take part in it, right? No, I think that makes sense. Yeah. I was thinking about there's this, uh, the real break between like Lenin and Plakhanov because now I'm switching from France to Russia. 
is, is 1905 when the revolution breaks out. And this is like, a, it's apocryphal, but it's based on a real exchange is that Plakhanov is like, well, you know, the workers shouldn't have taken to arms. Like they weren't ready. And Lenin's response is, but they did. And so what choice did we have? Yeah. That's it. I believe in the revolution because it is happening. And there's an attitude about like the way in which history is supposed to unfold or the way that your own life is supposed to unfold. And so since it's not unfolding in the way that you imagine, that you believe, that you have prepared yourself for, you might miss the actual making of history, however horrifying it ends up being, because you don't, you know, that's the wager. You don't, you don't really know how it's going to be. So I think like going into something like an Occupy Wall Street and just expecting that this is going to change the world, like, and I'll see it. So like 2012 will be better than 2011 because we came here. That is a kind of delusional optimism that I think really, it really hurts. It really knocked the yeah. wind out of a lot of people for a long yeah. time. There was another layer of people that went into this thinking something good will come of this. I hope that I'm going to jump in because I have to, because the alternative is to stand there and say, well, look, the optimists are wrong. So maybe next time. Yep. And I think that if you put too much weight into the delusional optimism, I think that's where nihilism comes from. Yeah. That's precisely what leads to nihilism is whenever you are horribly divested of that delusional optimism that you have. So I, I want to take a slightly different tact in terms of answering this question. Um, I'm going to try to invoke some Big Daddy Mark's energy here a little bit. The more I thought about <laughs> this, to me, I guess right now, if I can sit here and say that my whole goal is to somehow be a part of or, or help to bring about the rev or a revolution, the revolution, whichever one it is, I guess part of me in a very like brute material way has to say, okay, well, a revolution is the same way that we think of the word radical. Cause I describe myself as a radical is to like pull things up by the root. And so whenever I say, okay, well, what, what thing are we trying to pull up to me? The answer is, and will likely always be capitalism. And so if I want to pull that up by its root, it seems to me that whatever it is to be a revolutionary whatever a revolution could look like that is going to achieve that. I have to understand what capitalism is in order to understand what its roots are. And I think a lot of my thinking and sort of feeling about this is really centered on, before I even want to answer that question of what the revolution is, I want to know what the fuck it is that we're actually trying to overthrow or to pull up by its roots. And so I think talking about things like the happiness industry, to me, it's almost like, I don't even know if I would understand what a revolution looked like unless I knew exactly what it was that we were trying to overturn. And, you know, we can talk about things like Medicare for all, which I'm a Medicare for all stand. That's what I'll say, you know, because yes. I, I can see very realistically how that would fundamentally change so much about my life, about the people that I love's lives, especially back home where I'm from, where healthcare and the, ac the access and absence of that are just horrible and they're devastating on just your entire life. So I can understand that Yes, like those things would bring meaningful changes to so many people. And I want that. Would it be revolutionary in terms of pulling capitalism up by the roots? I don't know. I mean, maybe. I mean, this is the thing that Zizek says, right? Like in the United States right now, people can, you know, like criticize Medicare for all as being just like a reform and it's just people who are revisionists like it and blah, blah, blah. But to me, it's like, Look at the vitriol and the, the locking down of brutal resistance to this happening. And there's, mm -hmm. that's got to tell you something that like, this has to be so fundamentally threatening to the system as it exists, that there's a reason why they're reacting so strongly. And so I guess to me, you know, part of what I would just want to say is that, well, what does that help me understand about what capitalism is? And yeah, maybe helping to campaign for Medicare for all is a really revolutionary thing. I don't know. I mean, I think it could be. I look at how the system reacts violently to things that it knows are fundamentally threatening to it. And that tells me a little bit about what you would participate in that would be revolutionary, if that makes sense. Totally. So what was the thing that kicked off the Russian revolution in February? It was women going on strike. Yep just trying to get a, a little, a slightly bigger piece of the pie for themselves. Mm -hmm. The thing that kicked off May 68 was protests over the lack of co-ed dorms. Is that what it was? It happens to be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are some things that are just so threatening to the status quo that engaging in even these what appears to be sort of a piecemeal reform is cause the entire system and its viability into question. Medicare for all doesn't just promise to ease the crushing burden that working people face. 
it threatens to call the entire American economic system into question. And that's the problem because mm. if they allow Medicare for all, then what, and it works out and it's better and everything's good, then everything else that they said about why we couldn't have Medicare for all, why we can't have a more robust welfare state, why we can't stop bombing other countries, everything that they've said about what we need in order to maintain the system and about the, what we need in order to maintain a balance and about the validity of free and open markets is called into question. Yeah, I think just to tag onto that really quickly, I imagine that if that were the case, and it may not be the case, but if it is the case, the future is no longer canceled. The future is back on the table. And to me, that is perhaps the most threatening thing, because as we all talked about on our shows, and I think it's part of our our sort of spirit in dialectical pessimism and striving for utopia, we're trying to strive towards some way to say, the future could still exist. Right. We would like to uncancel it. Like just because yeah. <laughs> we say the future is canceled doesn't mean we don't want to bring it back off the shelves, dust it off and put it back, you know, we just want in, it to a, in self, a place of prominence. We want it to self-crit a little bit and then come back into the group and then, you know, reform itself and then it'll be uncanceled. Yeah. yeah we just, we just, need to, with the future. we just need to hire somebody <laughs> to write a new script, you know, and then, we'll, and then we'll put it back in rotation. The, uh, <laughs> I think that the people that look at the very limited, you know, moderate reform package that somebody like a Bernie Sanders puts forward. And they see that and they say, that's not revolutionary. I think those are the same people that like in a moment where we actually have like a, we elect a democratic socialist president who tries to carry out that reform package and is deals with a capital flight and the necessity of emergency executive orders to intervene in the economy and the, there's a strike wave and there are like rightist militias that are like trying to find commies and kill them in the streets and all of the things that could unfold as a result of something like a moderate reform package coming up against the realities of American capitalism. Those are the same people that would see that and say, ah, yeah, but you know, it's still not the revolution. Not exactly. You know, these are the people that look at the experience of Chile and say, ah, we'll see, you know, that's what happens when you try to like legislate socialism. Right. It's like, oh, yeah, you, you inaugurate a revolutionary moment and then you what you don't succeed, I guess. Is that the that's the fear. So then all of a sudden, pessimism is the new optimism takes on a, a completely different connotation. The thing that you're optimistic about is a thing that I don't think you actually believe in. Not you, any of the four uh, people here. But, oh, I see a hand being raised. I, you know, as, as you guys are talking about this, I'm I don't know how this would fit in or not fit in to a lot of what you're talking about. But the, the revolution that I, I feel strongly connected to is really informed not by as much by, by Marxism and revolutionary politics as it is by psychoanalysis. And the, there's two things that I think are really important to realize, that for, for me anyways, and other people probably think differently, that come from psychoanalysis. So the first thing is, and I think it would be revolutionary if people did this, is to recognize that we are all monsters. And what I mean by that is that everybody, myself included, loves to go through life thinking that we're nice people, that we're doing good things, that we have, um, that, that we don't want the world to suck, uh, that, under, that, that under no circumstances would I ever say that something like slavery is okay. The reality is that in me there is a monster, and under the right circumstances, that monster will gain control, and it will think that slavery is okay. And I have to recognize, I think, that that monster is a real part of me, that I have an unconscious, and the unconscious is a part of me that has a mind of its own. And there's nothing I can do about that, except for recognize that there is this part of me that is unconscious and has a mind of its own. Change my relationship to it in a way. Because uh, I believe that if I, if, if we, if other people are operating under the assumption that within them there is a monster, they might... Uh, be more careful uh, about that monster gaining control than they would be if they believe that that monster just does not exist. So that's the first part. This, and I think that's a pessimistic point of view. Uh, the second part is to recognize that the, the other with a capital O, the big other, the man, the system does not exist except for in my head. And with a lot of the things that you're bringing up, I know when people talk about any kind of major uh, policy change, right, that would do something like provide health care for people, disassemble nuclear weapons, radical dearmament. Uh, when we talk about giving people things that they don't have now, people tend to respond often with, that is impossible. The system will not allow that to happen. And the system is the big other. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the system 
only exists in your head and it exists collectively in the heads of most people right now. And so therefore it, it does exist, but only in their head. And I actually believe it would be revolutionary for people to recognize that it, it is not part of the real. It does not really exist. It, it only exists in the imaginary. It, it only exists symbolically. And there's a huge investment in that imaginary slash symbolic thing that we, we call the system, the big other as such. And if we, we can actually divest from it, it's possible that can happen. And it, it, it does happen, but that, that means that you have to go through the process of divestment. And I don't think that a lot of people really spend, I don't even know if they're willing to do it or not willing to do it. I don't think they even think about it. And so, I mean, this is kind of what Adam was talking about earlier was when I, I started to think about this. It's trying to examine the system as it exists currently in the forms that it exists in and starting to really analyze it. And, it, and perhaps if we go through a rigorous analysis, we'll start to recognize that it doesn't actually exist or that it does, but not in the way that we think that it does. And that that's the revolution as, as I see it. And I don't know, have any idea actually how to create the conditions for that revolution. I don't know how to kick it off. I don't know how to make it start, but I hope that maybe having conversations like this might be one step towards that that kind of a revolution. And you know, I guess we'll see. To well, being the manure, my comrades. <laughs> it's like, I, I was trying to find it. I can't. Everybody just trusts me on this, that there's some old Irish Republican oath or like, you know, call it a mantra or whatever, in which the participant rejects the authority of and even the existence of the British crown on Irish soil. It's like, obviously it's there, right? In the sense that like, it is a, a fiction, it's a paper tiger. It's like, you know, it has, it has armed men who go around and terrorize your neighborhoods and, you know, don't let you speak in Gaelic and so on, right? But henceforth, the person taking this oath refuses to acknowledge it, right? And it's a part of demystifying that big other and engaging in the realm of of the real, which is to say, I'm here and this, this obstacle's there and I'm going to throw myself up against it. But it's no longer so so grand that it cannot be grappled with because it now it comes in the form of pieces, this group of black and tans or whatever, you know. So there's a way in which I think that I can, that's the only way that I can like really conceptualize what you're saying without having to think very hard. And so maybe I should probably think a little bit harder. <laughs> I will say quickly too, that I think if part of that revolutionary process you know, on our show, we're very psychoanalytically oriented, which is probably no shock to anybody. But I do think that part of it isn't just demystifying the big other of like the system or the man or like capitalism or the state or whatever it might be. I think it also has to entail us demystifying the big others that we take on being part of the radical left, whatever that is, or the revolutionary mm -hmm. left or whatever. I think that's something that we try to do a lot on our show is constantly to say, well, you're you're sort of invoking of uh, these past historical moments is like you basically adopting a new master. Like that's you mm. like reinvesting in this idea that you need a big other to sort of like vouch for your success or give you credibility and legitimacy or to give you a sense of hope that you actually are going to be able to do something meaningful and worthwhile. What we are doing, I think, in a way that is truly dialectical and pessimistic is to basically say we are going to try to tear those things out, not only for us, but for those that we encounter and those that hopefully listen to us and, and through discussions like this. And I think for us, that's, that seems equally necessary is that we have to not only tear down the big brother of, of like the enemy, but also of, you know, our allies or like our, mm -hmm. our own idols, I think. Mm -hmm. To me, that feels absolutely crucial. Yeah, I actually had this discussion a lot in, over the last few years in trying to basically like erect a framework in which to be in basic communication and, and activity with other people who are thinking about the world in the way that I am. And time and time again, the, the debates, at, so, at some point they come around to like these aesthetic questions of like, do you or don't you use the hammer and sickle? Or do you have to call yourself revolutionary, whatever? And like, are we in the tradition of X, Y, and Z people or else are the, these, these others? And it's the most tedious stuff that you can ever be like so unfortunate to engage with. And part of the reason to me seems because it, it has just no bearing on what you actually do and really no bearing on what you think actually turns out. Because once you can all agree that we're going to be the revolutionary communist league and the symbol is a hammer and sickle and we're in the tradition of the three favorite figures of the 20th century, 
that we can get around to tearing each other apart about misinterpreting things or even just having a different idea about what to do tomorrow. Because none of that actually means anything, but it is comfortable for people. This is the, all of that stuff, I think, is good reasons to get rid of the big other. We, we believe in the big other and the revolution, the revolutionary vanguard. That could be the big other for people, right? And we believe in that. And in believing in it, we libidinally invest it in it. We, we see it as a thing that has authority. And we want it to have that authority because if it has that authority, that can then it can validate the things that we're doing. And that's what yeah. we want from it, right? I, I just sort of want people to, to the extent to which this might be possible, to recognize that that is what is going on. That people are creating this authority, and the reason that they're creating that authority is so that authority will validate the things that they do. It's circular. And I don't know that people recognize the, the circularness of this. It seems to me as though they're, they're engaging in this process without thinking too much about it. And I, I think that if they do think about it, they might start to recognize that they are creating this thing which is then giving them the validation to take whatever actions they're taking and the validation to take what to refrain from taking whatever actions they're refraining from taking because this other this big other that's what it wants me to do and it is there and it is powerful and it it is big and therefore I am justified in the way that I do whatever I do I don't know what would happen if more people started to think along those lines. I'm actually really interested to find out what might happen. I, it could be really bad, but I think that it would probably be good. And I'm hoping that it would be good because that's what I, what I really think is a huge part of the revolution for me. Well, things are pretty bad now, so I'm just going <laughs> to assume that it maybe wouldn't lead to something worse than what we have right now, at least in theory. That's so weird though, I, even though, Adam, because I wonder, in my conversations with people, I think that things are really bad now, but I'm discovering that there are many people who do not share that point of view. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to a lot of people and they'll be like, what are you talking about? Things are actually like really groovy right now. Think about all of the choices and things you have access to. Think of all of the things you can do now that you couldn't have even done in like 1985. It's, things are good. And some of the things you can do now that you couldn't do in 1985 are like really bad. Totally. I, and and I'm, I'm, I get that. But it's, it's interesting to, to think about that because in, in those discussions, one of the, the tacks I think I can take is to try to understand what is the big other that is validating this person's version of good and, and to, to have a conversation maybe with that in mind and to see where that goes. It doesn't always end up being productive, but it's oftentimes interesting to do it in that way. That's one of the things I think is our world historic mission as pessimist podcasters is to convince everybody that the things that they think are good are actually bad. I'm on board <laughs> for that 100%. Everything you like is bad. Everything is terrible. <laughs> I, uh, I had a situation once where a, a student of mine said something where they, they started a sentence where they were like, you know, I don't want to put this down. And then they, they proceeded to say whatever they're going to say next. And I, I, I pointed out that that was a huge negation, right? That that was exactly what they intended to do was to put that thing down. Because uh, that's a, a typical thing we cover early in the classes, parapraxies and negations. And Intend to put things down. Yeah, yeah. And the student was like, can't you just let me enjoy something? Is that possible in psychoanalysis? Can I just enjoy something? And I said, no, no, you no. can't. <laughs> no, you cannot. <laughs> you can enjoy something, but you can't just enjoy something you have to enjoy something with the full knowledge that it sucks and it is actually doing damage mm -hmm. then yes go on and enjoy it i mean i do that all the time we all do yeah it's funny, I had another student say to me that that every time uh they find themselves saying that something is just whatever they they hear of my voice in their head saying nothing is ever just anything and, and that I've wrecked that for them, too. Good. It, it, can you figure out a way to ruin it is what it is? I've been working on that, actually. Uh, I actually, I, I am also <laughs> very invested in this project. I think my starting point for this is that to say it is what it is, is the most conservative ideological worldview that anyone can have. So I'm trying to approach it through the, the inherent conservatism of it and how that would be very dissonant with other things that a person believes. Well, this is the only place where we can learn something from the Bill Clinton era. So it is what it is, right? But what is, what is, is. is. 
this is why everyone needs to be reading theory because that is the most theoretical question anyone can ask. And remember, the whole point of theory and philosophy is not to answer things, but to ask the right questions. That is the right question. (laughs) A lot of people like to make fun of Bill Clinton for asking that, but I think that was baller. That was was a a masterstroke of genius is what it was. Yeah. Big theoretical energy right there from Mr. Clinton. From Slick Willie. <laughs> One of the most vile and disgusting humans to have ever disgraced this planet. That's yeah, true. and it's somehow continuing to do so in defiance of, of obviously death knocking at his door at all times. But- in true dialectical fashion, we found one good thing that old Slick Willie did. <laughs> he posed the ultimate theoretical question for, for it is what it is. In a way, we are still living with the burden of the theoretical question he posed, just as we are still living with the burden of his presidency and its exactly. effect on American liberalism. That's absolutely it's, uh, utter fucking brain rot i've been thinking about this when people say it is what it is i want to respond by telling them it is an empty signifier it it (laughs) itself (laughs) is the problem (laughs) not only are we unclear as to what is is but it is an empty signifier just Mm -hmm. so you know i am now going to spend the next two weeks conducting an exercise where every time someone says that i'm going to try this out and i'm going to see how it goes Uh, well the only the only thing left is to figure out a question to pose the conundrum of what so then you can diagram it is what it is on the blackboard and and, and identify and isolate <laughs> philosophical problems posed by the three words in that sentence <laughs> and while all of you guys are debating the uh merits of the word is and it i will be organizing a platform for the expulsion of all people who use the term it is what it is from society and their complete ostracization Expulsion from society. Where from are they society, go? yes. I mean, uh, gulags. I don't know. Florida. <laughs> there'll, there'll be a whole separate society, like a whole like city state, where just everyone. That's all they say to each other, just twenty four hours a day. Yeah. Sounds I think good. that's Ohio. <laughs> ooh, ooh. Hey, Apologies. we might have listeners. Is, is, is that some, <laughs> is that some <laughs> Midwest rivalry going on there? I don't know, man. It just seems like <laughs> the place where that would be. What what's going on? I don't yeah. know. I was happy. Wow.